everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Our teaching today is rooted in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Yeah, man. You know it's going to be a good one when the passage ends with liable to the hell of fire. Uh, my name's Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, I have something from my life to share with you. Uh, yesterday was my debut. Uh, Coach Z entered the world of basketball yesterday. Uh, my team is a group of highly, uh, highly chiseled athletes um, of the kindergarten variety. Uh, they're quite wonderful. We started our first game, and the way it works in this particular league is your first 30 minutes is practice, your last 30 minutes is the game. So had never met any of these kids before. And so as they're walking into the gym and kind of like, are you the right coach? Are you the right coach? I'm meeting the parents just fine. But as we lock eyes and they start walking across the gym, it's, it's the six-year-old who, as they get closer to me, are slowly and slowly doing this. And it was, like, it was like the experience of being a troll entering a village and the villagers just running like that. Hi, I'm your coach. Ah, you know, like, oh, this is going well. But it was okay. It was okay. Like, we recovered and we got into some drills. We were doing really good. And then, um, and then I made my first mistake uh, as a coach. Probably was my first. First one that I noticed. I said, okay, okay, everybody in on me. And I took a knee, and there's six-year-olds, right? So on me means on me. Like, and there's, there are eight six-year-olds covering my body, which was delightful. Like, that was, that was super fun. No, no, here's what that means, blah, blah. As the game goes on, I, it was just a reminder the whole time. Six-year-olds are just so literal. At one point, we got in the ball. It was on our end of the cart. I hand it to one kid, and I say, okay, you're going to pass into Houston. Houston, hang out right here because all the other kids run down the other end. And I turn around, and I say something else to this kid. And I turn back around, and, and Houston's lo- sitting on the floor. <laughs> I'm like, Houston, what are you doing? You said to hang out right here. I was like, okay, stand up. We're playing basketball. Like, we're going to be okay. My favorite moment, my favorite moment. Oh, man, my dude, Wes- Wes- Wellesley, Wellesley. Wellesley is, is a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. 
at six. Goes down, he, he's dribbling around. Wellesley's going to learn how to pass this year at some point. I feel, I feel so good about it. But Wellesley has this one where he goes down, and it's like fadeaway jumper, just absolute magic. Follow through on the wrist, like, oh, Wellesley. And we're running back, and I'm running backwards, and he's running towards me. And I'm like, man, give me a high five. Way to go, Steph Curry. And he looks at me like he just stops moving. And, and I, I'm like, something's happened in this moment. I'm like, hey, are you okay? He goes, it's not my name. <laughs> no, Wellesley, I'm so sorry. Like, Steph Curry's a basketball player. He goes, oh, oh, yeah, I know who that is. And then, and then I'm like, okay, we're, like, the game's happening. So I, like, I back off because I'm like, we're going to be okay. And as I'm backing up, I hear him say under his breath, but that's not my name. <laughs> and then he says, I'm more than just Steph Curry. I'm Wellesley. <laughs> I was just like, this kid, dude, I'm just, I'm living my best life coaching six-year-old. It's so much fun. And as we continue on in our series on hearing God, I just wonder if your life has been similar to mine in this way, that there have been times in the ways that you have addressed Jesus or even addressed God where he's muttering under his breath, oh man, with delight in his voice, I am so much more than that. And as we jump in to our teaching for today, it's just so important that we consider who is Jesus to us right now. He for sure was a man, feels pretty historically undeniable. Was he just a historical character? It's also pretty undeniable, no matter what you believe or where you're from, he was an excellent teacher. For many, it's hard to deny that he was a role model. But was he God? And when you think about Jesus, what about the word friend? Does that ever make its way into how you describe Jesus? Sure, he was a friend to other people. What about a friend to you? What about a source? He is the source of things for you. What does that look like? I was reading a a point in a book a couple weeks ago that said, when we consider Jesus, do we think about him like he was the most intelligent person ever to have lived or who is still alive? And that thought kind of made me grin. Like, no, I do not think of Jesus like a college professor. I wonder why. That's interesting. Is he the voice of God? And this is where the rubber starts to meet the road, I think, for us a little bit. Because everything else we've discussed, like those are really beautiful things to consider. But to call him God or to call him the voice of God, man... Now, now it's starting to push on some things because that has implications. It doesn't have a ton of implications if you agree, yeah, he's a historical character. But if he's God, <laughs> that's different. And I just want to address, in a room this size, we're all over the map. And at this church, we just love to say, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, you're welcome here. No matter how you answer the question, who's Jesus? You're welcome here. Today's the day we're just going to peel back one more layer and say, who is he? How should we look at him? What does he say about himself? And as we get in, I wanted to share with you a thought from, uh, yeah, a really good writer and somebody who really thought well and deeply about Jesus. And this is one of the more provocative things that I think that C.S. Lewis has ever said. He said this in one of his letters. It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers will bring us to him. 
I don't know if that makes you bristle, all of my biblical and theological background. I hear that and I go, oh, let's talk about that. There's implications to that. What does it mean that Jesus seems to supersede the Bible as the Word of God? That's a big statement. Is that true? And so, let's explore this a little bit. What would it mean if we really said, I want to hear the voice of God, and if God's response was, well, I sound like Jesus. Our verses for today come out of Jesus' kind of inaugural address in the book of Matthew, in this gospel story, where this writer, Matthew, who was a tax collector himself once upon a time, is just taking down the account of here's what Jesus said. Here's what his life was about. Here's his teaching. Here's what happened. And this particular teaching is one where Jesus is talking mostly to a group of Jewish people who really know their law. They know their Old Testament. And because of that, he starts with this statement, look, I'm not coming to say that doesn't matter anymore and that we're doing something new. He's very clear out of the gate. Despite how it sounds, know that in everything I say, I am taking this and I am fulfilling it. We are, I'm going to show you exactly what this meant down to the guts of this teaching. Let's hear this one more time. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 22. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks from the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Hell of fire gets me every time. That's like Yoda verbiage right there. Not hellfire. It's not hell. It's just hell of fire. It's weird. Why does he say it like that? There's two things going on here. One is this bigger idea. One is an example of that bigger idea. So let's start with this smaller one. Uh, some of us in the room the last few weeks have been memorizing the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've gotten as far, if you're doing the verbatim to get to the, the really hard verse, you shall not murder. That's it. That's all you got. <laughs> Just remember that. You got one down. One out of ten. Uh, Jesus is saying, look, that's something that everybody in this room that's having this conversation, everybody knows that one. But let me tell you really what that means. This is, this is just a teaching of deep conviction. I say to you that if you're angry, you're liable to judgment. That if you insult someone, if you say you fool, the implications are massive. And Jesus is saying, this isn't a new teaching. This is an elaboration. This is maybe a deepening of what has already been there. And we're going to dig into that just in just a little bit. But Jesus, Jesus is saying, this has always been the truth of that command. 
you shall not murder doesn't just mean don't commit homicide. I'm talking about internal workings that are going on. Do you buy this? Do you agree with this kind of a teaching? Not just, yeah, I agree. Every, I think most of us would agree. I hope <laughs> it's not okay to murder people. But do you agree with the teaching, it's not okay, like there's something wrong and off with considering an insult or harboring anger or saying something even as gentle as you fool? What do you think? Of, like th- That's an intense teaching, Jesus. That has direct implications for your life if you believe it. Conviction. That, that is conviction. Okay, we're going to hold this thought and we're going to circle back on it because that is an example of a bigger point that he's making. And the bigger point, this seems to be what he's teaching about. While it may sound like he's changing what God has said all along, he's exposing God's heart that's always been there. And it leads us to this bigger idea. He's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What does that mean? Let's start with the law and what it was all about. In its most basic form, it was these Ten Commandments. It's really at the heart of why we've been memorizing them together as a church family. Why does God in Scripture just seem so keen on His people remembering these Ten Commandments? If you were here last week, and we're going to dive back in to just remembering this, it's because to Him those Ten Commandments, these things that were written on these two stone tablets, in Jewish culture, this mirrors perfectly and directly It's a marriage proposal. It's called his ketubah. This was something that when God began engaging with his people, he said, I want to do life together with you for always. Here's how I want it to work. So let's dive in and remember this a little bit. If you were going to get married in the Old Testament, here's how this would go. You would have this ketubah. These would essentially be your wedding vows. You would write them down and you would present them to the girl that you want to get engaged to. And it's not just in sickness and in health. It would outline specific things. This is how the groom will commit to care for his wife, to provide for her, to clothe her, to adore her, cherish her, cherish family together. If God wills that that would happen, it would outline how he will protect her. As they would talk about it, there would be this idea between their fathers, the groom's dad and the bride's dad, of sign here. If you say yes to this, she will be taken care of. But it wasn't just the dads who had a say in this thing. If the dads could work this agreement out to a place where they were on the same page, they would turn to the bride and they would say, here are the terms. Here's the rest of your life with this guy. Are you in or are you out? And she would signify her response by having a cup of wine. And if the answer was no, she would pour it out. And if the answer was yes, she would drink it. And then the party was on. But the work was not yet done. From here, she would become known by some pretty cool names. Her, her dad would almost always give a gift. It would be financial. It would be livestock, something like that. Would give a gift to the groom and his dad. But really, it was given with her. And it was this idea of she's coming to your house. I want to make sure that she is provided for. That she and, and many of these possessions, in many cases, would actually stay with her. If there was land given, it was in her name. It was in her title. All of these things would be given so that she could have a nest egg, something to begin this new life together, this whole life that we're going to have forever together. She would have financial resources for that. 
And so she would become known by some nicknames. She who is bought with a great price, or she who is the treasured possession. That's what she would be called because of all this. After this engagement, if she had said yes, she would hang on to the idea of this ketubah, these vows, and she would begin learning until her groom came back and it was her wedding day. What skills do I need to learn? What things do I need to be doing so that my life is ready to seamlessly move into life with my groom? And, and she'd spend that time pouring over. Some of those were basic housekeeping skills. Some of those were learning recipes from her mom so that she would know, like, what does cooking look like in this situation? And some of that would look like, what's the heart behind this? And is my heart one that is aligned and can become aligned to live this life seamlessly when the time comes? From here, he, the groom, would head off back home. And he would begin building on to his father's house a room that would be just for him and his bride. And he would work and work and work. And the person he was working for really during this time is his dad because he is not done building this place until his dad says, it's time. The time has been fulfilled. The room looks right. These vows, my son, that you say you want to live out, the type of life that this is going to require, this is a place where you're going to be able to do that. Well done. And they would leave from there, and they would send a runner ahead to her village who would just be screaming, they're coming, they're coming. And she would have watchers this entire time during this engagement who would just be waiting for that runner to come. When those watchers saw the runner, they would run back, and they would tell her, it's time. Your wedding day has arrived. For those of you that are young brides in the room, this is inducing crazy anxiety of like, you mean you didn't have it picked in a calendar like 12 months in advance? Like, no, you just, it was a surprise. It's so much fun, depending on your perspective. <laughs> and yes, last week we talked about this idea of this is a pretty patriarchal community. There's a lot of stuff here that we go, man, we don't quite do it that way anymore. We don't quite think about that way anymore. There's some things about this culture that are awesome. There are some that are more difficult for us. But in it all, I think if we're going to understand this Jesus and what he's saying about fulfilling and not abolishing the law, this setup of how a proposal works is so important. Because God, way back in the Old Testament, when he gives his Ten Commandments, it is going through all of these steps. I want you. I want to do life together with you. This is exactly how I want our life to look together. And as we talked about last week, we hit the, these verses in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. We're just going to read a couple. It's God saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words I am commanding you today in your heart. I am giving you this ketubah. I am proposing. Don't just put it in a drawer. Put it in your heart. Hear it. Let's do life together. And again, God is saying, this is, these are my terms. It's also important, and then we're going to begin tying these things together, 
the way that we set this up last week too, that he says, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this will be a very brief recapture of what we did last week, but just to remind us, when it's saying here the word heart, it's talking about everything going on on the inside of us, your thoughts, your feelings, your internal dialogue, everything going on in there. When it says, love the Lord with all your soul, that to us may feel like, well, that's kind of a thing, but, but what does that mean? And when we dig into how it's talking about it in the Bible, the word soul really has this connotation of the breath, the breath that really reminds us of when Adam was created and God breathed into Adam. It's more than just air. It's more than just spirit. It's the thing that animates Adam. It's the thing that brings him to life. It's the thing that allows his body to do things. It's his energy. So God says, love the Lord with all your heart, everything going on on the inside of you. Love the Lord with all your energy, all the things that you can do. And then, love the Lord with all your might. And we talked about last week. This might convince us, just with the way that we would read the word might, that this also is like, oh yeah, same thing. Power, energy, muscle. But really, the word here is the word that, that captures your resources. All of, all of your ability to do things. So this includes physical strength, but it also includes your economic strength or your social strength. It could be extended to the physical things that an Israelite owned, their tools, their livestock, their house, things like that. So when God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, he's not just saying, yeah, kind of everything, but he's saying reverberating from the inside out in everything that you do, this ripple effect in your soul. Here are my vows. This is the life that I want to live together. Put them inside of you. Hear them. Let them run your inner dialogue. Let them make their way into your energy and the resources you have, the relationships that you have, all the influence in the social world that you have. Put it there too, inside and out. And so, we have Jesus coming on scene, saying, I've not come to abolish those things. I've not come to abolish this initial set of vows, this initial proposal. I've come to fulfill it. This proposal that was once made, if you know the story of the Old Testament, if you've read a lot, a lot or even a little bit there, it just doesn't take a lot to be like, man, this just didn't go super great right out of the gate. Or later on, in the gate. At any point in the gate. It's just not gone very well. And Jesus is saying, hmm, let's finish that work because that was beautiful. That's what I'm here for. And he's very keen as we understand the character of Jesus. It is not just my teaching. I'm not coming to correct the information that was a part of that ketubah. I have come to fulfill it. Like my person, my character, who I am, everything that I will do is fulfilling those vows. You want to see what it's like for a man to live perfectly with God. You want to see what it's like to have kind of the spiritual marriage idea actually work itself out. What would it look like to have somebody who took God at his word and said, I will live this way on the inside with my energy and with everything I've got? Jesus. If you want to hear God, 
God sounds like Jesus. So, how does Jesus fit into this whole thing? And this is where it just gets so much fun. And it's, there's so much more than this. The editing floor of this week is just, it's so full of stuff. Like last week was crazy. This week is, there's so much more that I wish we had time to share about today. But this is some of the best stuff. Who is Jesus in this whole idea of a proposal? He is the ketubah. He is the thing that God has written on. He is the promise and the plan of how God will commit to care for and provide for you, to clothe you, to adore you, to protect you. It's Him. He is the ketubah. It it was written on a person this time, not just a stone tablet, which is actually quite something. Because when God says, put these things in your heart, Jesus says, okay, it's there. Perfectly. It is written on a person, something alive, not something dead. The paradox of it's now written on a human being and not a piece of rock. There's a lot there that we could dive into. We don't have time for. This Jesus, he lived perfectly, these Ten Commands. He perfectly shows us how. And when there's a gap, when we try and follow his example and we fail, he perfectly covers the gap. These rippled circles from the inside to the energy to the outside. Jesus did it perfectly. If you want a model, look at him. Hear what God says. What he's inviting us to is Jesus. God sounds like Jesus. Who's Jesus in this scenario? He's the dowry. He is the price that was paid so that you could begin a new life together with God. Yeah, he's the resources that you need to begin your new life with God. Ooh. Who is Jesus in this whole scenario? He is the groom, yes. He's currently making a home for you right now. He's waiting for his father to tell him that he's done so that he can bring you home. He's a place where you can live out the ketubah together. He has that place. And man, I mean, I think, I think this works for anyone in the room. If you've ever seen a Hallmark movie, if you've ever been enthralled with the idea of romantic love, the idea of a groom who's waiting for the day to come, the amount of desire, the, the depth of relationship, this hunger, the adventure that he anticipates, life. Oh, he's just so pumped about it. He cannot wait. Who are we? in this situation. We are the bride. You have been bought with a great price. We're going to celebrate communion in just a little bit. Let that just sink in, that as you're receiving those elements, this was the cost. The cost, too, that you could be called a treasured possession. Who are we in this situation? We're the bride. And so that means that it's our role right now to begin preparing to live out this ketubah, prepared to live out the way that Jesus has lived, that we're trying to figure out what do we need to learn so that we can just start living that way. That's our job. And as a quick note, and again, man, there's just so much here. We have to see that the place where we're going to live with Jesus is here. We're not escaping this world. This world will be remade new, will be remade new. 
But our work as we prepare and the work that as Jesus is preparing, it is for this world. It is for the ingredients of this world. So we're not trying to escape this life. We're not just waiting for something to come some far distance away. We're waiting for something to come here. And that has some ripple effects. Okay, with all this in mind, let's read this one more time. Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said, was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Can you see it here? In this character of Jesus, it's not just don't commit homicide. It's about the inside and what's going on. And it is about what you do with your energy. Do not murder the fulfillment of this ketubah. What God always meant when he gave this to human beings was it should be this ripple effect. In a teaching like this, we go, that is just convicting. How would that even work? Well, God sounds like Jesus. So, this is now the fun part of this time. You want to hear God together. We did this last week. It was my favorite things. I, I just hope we keep finding ways to do this, but I just have a contemplative moment for us today. A moment where we're just going to spend time. This may start to feel a little bit like the Lectio Divina practice that we picked up last week. This is different. This is just going to be a practice of being with Jesus. Being with Jesus in a story of Jesus. So what I'm going to do is we're going to read through the same story three times. And as we do, for those that are visual in the room and you need to follow along with the words, go for it. But I would really recommend, close your eyes. And like a movie director, imagine the scene. And as we set this up, who are you in this scene? What perspective do you take on? Is there a character that's you that's named are you just simply a bystander watching it as a third person? Hear this story out of Luke chapter 7. This is Jesus and an encounter that he has with a couple very different people. Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, 
But she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You can keep your eyes closed. But can you see the room right now? As you've now heard this story. Can you see the table that we're all sitting at eating this meal? Can you see some of the folks that are around it? What time of day is it right now as you imagine this scene? Wiggle the toes in your shoes. Can you feel the dirt on your feet in this story? Can you feel the tension in the room between these Pharisees and the seeming interrogation of Jesus? Before we read again this next reading, I want you to focus your attention on this woman. The context would really clearly lead us to believe this is a prostitute, someone who's immoral, someone who, when you think about her life, it does cause you to think about what men have done to her. It would cause you to think about what her family looks like. It would cause you to wonder as you sit in her story what thoughts she has about the word husband. And what's her intention here? There's just such a risk in entering this house. And the purchase of this perfume, this is a really expensive bottle of ointment. And can you see her tears? Notice that she's wiping his feet from behind him. See the dirt in her tangled hair and the tear stains on her cheeks. Behold this woman in this story. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both of them. Now, 
Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can you see her? We're going to read through this one final time. At this time, I want you to stay in the room. And again, engaging your imagination the best that you can, I want you to now shift in your seat and look over at Simon. Simon, man, this is my guy. <laughs> at this point in his ministry, Jesus has been saying some pretty controversial things, things that would have been pretty threatening to Simon and his, his entire group of friends. Simon is the kind of guy who takes God very seriously. He had all Ten Commandments memorized forwards and backwards. He was all about the study. Why didn't he offer to wash Jesus' feet or, oint, or anoint him with oil? Why does he call him teacher? What was his motive in this invitation? What's in his heart? And then, what is Jesus' motive in responding to this invitation? As we go through this final reading, shift in your seat too, where you can really get Simon and Jesus in your purview. What's Jesus hoping for in this entire scene with this woman in front of Simon? What's he teaching? And as a quick note, Jesus spent the majority of his time on earth in ministry with the Pharisees. He seems so focused on them as a people group. These are folks he really wanted to teach, and I think he loved their dedication to study but he knew that they needed to experience God. So he hung around patiently. Can you see him in the room? Simon and Jesus. Make sure that you can see Jesus' face as we go through this one more time. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. And a woman in the city was a sinner having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now hold the scene. Who are you in this scene? What character have you been? Are you the woman? Are you Simon? Are you a dinner guest who's just been observing? Are you not even that, but you're just a wallflower? As you hold this place in the scene, Jesus goes from looking at this woman who's now walking out the door to looking at Simon to making dead eye contact with you. What's in his face? What's in his gaze? And keep imagining this as we land the plane here, because I want to bring this teaching home. No matter who you were in this scene, it's a very simple thing to remember that all of these people were enemies of Jesus. This woman, she was a sinner. She's a prostitute. She is not living out the terms of the ketubah, the life that God would have for her. Jesus was going to have to die for those sins. Simon, a Pharisee, he's indignant, he's prideful, he is hateful and spiteful. Likely he will be in the mob that will call for Jesus' crucifixion in just a couple months. Did Jesus know then that Simon would be there? Did he know the words that would be in Simon's mouth? And then there's you and me. Whether you're the woman or Simon or a house guest or a wallflower, your natural response to this story likely takes you, as it does me, to a direction of murder. Of someone, she's gross. She's pitiable. She's shameful. Or him. These Pharisees are terrible. They're heartless. They're judgmental jerks. heard it said in those ancient times, you shall not murder. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother, if you insult a brother or sister, if you say you fool, you will be liable. When he looks at you and me, how do we respond? I hope that in this you've not forgotten that Jesus is saying, these are my vows. I want to live life with you. If there is shame in his face, if there is frustration in his voice, I would just encourage you, that's not what a groom sounds like. The way he responds to this woman, ugh. and even the way he responds to Simon with such patience. He lived out this teaching. Jesus' inner dialogue is not looking at them, and it's not looking at you thinking, you fool, with insult, with shame. He lived it from the inside out. What would it be like for us to continue to learn from this Jesus? 
to sit in this room with him and to say the things and to think the things and to do the things that he was doing, to love God from this ripple effect inside out. If you want to hear the voice of God, God sounds like Jesus. Not just in the text, not just in your encounter with him, but in how you live out that encounter, how you live out that person. So when you put down this story, how do you hear him in the world around you? You are the bride sitting with this ketubah. It's one thing to read the words and marvel at them. It's another thing to change how you're living to be ready to live with your groom. We wrap up for the day together. Man, this is just important. (laughs) I hope that if you're here, you're just somebody who's going, my spiritual life, it just matters to me. And if that's true, I hope that the kind of spiritual life that you're seeking is not one that's like, I will be self-fulfilling to all my needs. Man, there's just such freedom that comes with going, God, if you're out there, I want to hear you. I want to know what you're like. I want to be able to hear your voice and in real time experience you. And if that's you, I've just got three invitations for you. Learn from people. (laughs) Who are the folks that you would say, they're mentoring me? These are folks that they do this practice all the time. These folks read scripture. They're with God. They hear his voice and I'm learning from them to do the same. And regardless of where you are in your journey, are, those folks, are there folks that you would consider being a mentor too? And in this, particularly with today's teaching, man, so much of the work we do in this building and particularly the work that a lot of the folks that Katie works with outside of this building, our local partners and our global partners, if you're going to learn from people, what would it be like to consider this year circling something in the calendar to go, I'm going to go serve there with other people. Juvenile justice. I want to know what it's going to be like to serve kids who are in the system. I'm going to show up for a nightlights event. And I'm going to serve families. Second thing, learn from just continuing to study. We've got a couple more copies of Willard's book out in the lobby called Hearing God. It's fantastic. With today's practice, immerse yourself in the person of Jesus and experience him. Don't just read for information. Read for encounter. Direct access to the heart of a God who is still proposing is yours. He is still creating a place for you, a life to live, this perfect life together. And in a world where people can hear God's voice, and frankly, they can hear some wacky things sometimes, here is our best look. The Word of God, not just the Bible. The best expression of the Word of God is this Jesus. Keep listening to the rabbi. Keep emulating him. Understand the heart of a groom who right now is thinking about you and yearning for you and desiring you and learn to meet his gaze. And finally, if you want to grab some of those cards of the Ten Commandments out in the lobby, memorize those bad boys. Jesus had them down. But learn to see them as Jesus saw them. That it's not just this external action, don't commit homicide. From the inside all the way out, how would it look like to say yes to these vows? God bless you as you continue to learn and yearn and desire and experience hearing the voice of God. For those that are able, let's stand and sing together.